join me in turning to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter number 19. This is the conclusion of that section we began considering together last week in Revelation chapter 18. We're trying to keep these sections together so as to not do violence to our ability to understand them in their context. But given the length of that section, all of chapter 18 and the first 10 verses of chapter 19, we were left with no option but to divide somewhat the section. So we're looking at the latter part of a vision that was begun in last week's teaching. I think the misconception for a lot of people with regards to preaching is that the pastor's job is to take a passage and look at it until he comes up with something to say about the passage. The unfortunate reality is I've heard a lot of those sermons in my life as a follower of Jesus. But that is not the job of the pastor. The job of the pastor is to take a passage of Scripture and to look at it until he determines what the main point of that passage is, not to shoehorn his own ideas or forward his own personal agenda on the basis of a phrase, a word here or there, or a passage in, in a broader sense. There are, surprisingly perhaps, certain indications within the text of Scripture that point us to the main idea of any given section, linguistic and literary features that, that are flashing lights saying, this is the point, this is the point, this is the point. Now, the, the first responsibility of the pastor in preparation for the preaching event is to determine what the main idea, the one idea of the passage is. A lot of guys like to have three points in a sermon. If I just have a point on Sunday morning, I'm good with that, right? Just a sermon should have at least one point. I don't think I've ever had a passage with as brief a big idea or main idea as what we have in the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19. I always try to write those out very succinctly. Here I can give you the teaching of Revelation 19, 1 through 2, in two words, 1 through 10, rather, in two words. It is, amen, hallelujah. That's the message. That's it. Now, that's every preacher's job to determine the main idea of any given passage, but only a Baptist preacher can take 30 minutes to say two words, amen and hallelujah. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. If you have found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation 19 and verse 1. This is what the word of God says. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his slaves that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his slaves who fear him, both small and great. And I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. 
She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. I cannot tell you the number of times through the years that I've heard Christians speculate or question their ability to rejoice in the judgment that is to come in light of the fate that that secures for so many. The question or the concern is usually stated as a question, how can I rejoice knowing the fate of so many I have known and loved in this life? I would suggest to you that the question itself underestimates the seriousness of sin and fails to account for the extent to which our perspectives on sin and righteousness are drastically changed in the presence of a God who is holy, holy, holy in his righteousness. What we have observed in Revelation 18 is the final fall and destruction of Babylon. You may be helped to know if you're new to our study that Babylon has two points of symbolic reference. First, for the seven churches of Asia Minor, it represents the city of Rome at the heart of the vast Roman Empire. It is the embodiment. It is the insurmountable obstacle that stands between the church and the advancement of the kingdom on all the earth, the, adva- the, the embodiment of all that is evil. It is the symbol for the seven churches of Asia Minor, for that which opposes the purpose and the plan and the people of God in their first century context. But John will use the symbolism of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18, not only to take in the city of Rome in this first century context, but to become the symbol of anything and everything, every place, every nation, every city, every government, every movement, every institution, every ideology that has ever or will ever oppose the purpose, the plan, or the people of God is symbolized in the city of Babylon. And she will fall. There is such force, such finality about the destruction of Babylon in Revelation 18. There are seven voices that celebrate or at least state the fall, the final fall and destruction of Babylon. There are three voices from within the earth that speak to the finality of Babylon's fall. They're they're using these numbers, the seven and the three, these numbers of completion to speak to the precise nature of her fall and the finality. She is dead. She doesn't get any more dead than what we find her at the end of Revelation 18. And now it's as though John's vision camera pans from the experience of earth where Babylon has been found dead to heaven. And we get the ability here in the first 10 verses of Revelation 19 to see and to join ourselves together with the response of heaven toward the destruction of Babylon. And I just got to tell you, Babylon is dead, and heaven is all praise 
Revelation 19, beginning in verse number one. The Bible says, after this, I heard something like the, the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. So we've already learned the message, the imperative of our passage. What we are to take away is amen, hallelujah. We are to say that what God has done is good and it is true. Amen and amen. And we are to say, hallelujah, worship God for what he has done. God is worthy of worship and praise. And this act of justice and the gift of salvation are to move us to worship him all the more. This multitude in heaven are saying, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Praise him for the gift of salvation. Praise him for the sending forth of his son, the shelter he has afforded us from the wrath that is to come behind the blood and in the body of his son, Jesus Christ. Praise him today. Amen and hallelujah to God for the gift of salvation he has afforded us. I would note here that the gift of salvation that we enjoy in Jesus is inseparably connected to the working of God in judgment against the sin of this world. Our tendency is to compartmentalize those two things, to see God moving separately in salvation and separately in judgment. God's act of judgment against Babylon is on one level his act of salvation for the people of God. The imagery here is of a bride who's meandered into the wrong part of town at the wrong time of night. She's been assaulted and accosted by a gang of criminals, and the groom shows up at the 11th hour and brings under judgment those who've mistreated his bride and in doing so seals the deliverance and the salvation of his church. That's the imagery of Revelation 18 and 19. Praise the Lord for his act of salvation. How is it that God saved Noah and his family through a flood of wrath? It was in the ark the act of judgment against those who had mocked and scorned Noah as he constructed this great boat. How is it that God saved the people of Israel backs against the Red Sea wall? It was in an act of judgment against the Egyptian army, bearing down chariots and horsemen on the people of Israel. How is it that God saved the Israelites as they assembled themselves outside the city of Jericho? It was with the, the sounding of a trumpet and the tumbling of those walls and the chaotic destruction of that great city. God moves in judgment against the sin of this world, sealing and securing the salvation of his people. Praise God for his salvation. Glory and power belong to him and to him alone. Verse 2 says, because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth, because God always does what is right, hallelujah and amen. We observe consistently a crooked and perverse system of justice. What we crave to have in this life, justice and righteousness, to see what is right rewarded, what is wrong punished, we cannot have in this life. But there is a good God in heaven who is ruler over all the earth and who is coming with precision to serve justice in all the earth. Praise him because his judgments are true and righteous because he's judged the source of opposition to the purpose and the plan and the people of God. This Notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her 
sexual immorality. It's not just that she chose independent of others to defy the plan of God. It is that she enticed others to join together with her in her willful defiance of God's plan, God's purpose, and in the persecution of his people. Praise him that Babylon has been and will be brought to justice. Praise him because he's avenged the blood of his servants, his slaves that was on her hands. One day, all that has been so wrong will be made so right under the sovereign lordship of our God. In verse 3, the Bible says, a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Do you remember in last week's notes, there was that direct quotation from Roman propaganda, from the propaganda of the empire that said that Rome is the eternal city which exists for the peace and prosperity of all who are subject to her authority? Rome as a city believed itself to be the eternal city. It would abide forever. Nothing could beset the city of seven hills, well fortified and easily defended. The mother city of this vast empire, virtually all of the civilized world, had been subjugated to the authority of the city of Rome. Oh, she'll live forever. This is a thumb in the eye of the imperial propaganda of the first century. Oh, yes, she'll live forever, but only in so much as her smoke ascends forever and ever. A testament to the justice of God served against her. In verse 4, the Bible says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. This section, this is where the flashing lights are. This is where the pointing arrows are. This statement at the heart of this section is the main point of the passage. We are to say amen and amen, hallelujah, praise our God. What we'll see by the time we come to the close of the passage is that there's even a secondary effect that the worship of God has for us. We're helped even as we worship God for no other reason than that he is worthy of all worship and praise. The worship of God alleviates issues in other parts of our life. What we're discovering in this section of Revelation 19 is the principle Jesus outlines in Matthew 6, 33, that when we seek the kingdom and his righteousness, when our priorities are straight, when Jesus is on the throne of our heart and at the fore of our thoughts, everything else finds its place. And so it is with the worship of God. When this is the priority of our life, when the cry of our heart is amen and hallelujah, everything else seems to find its place. I'll show you what I mean before we're done. Verse 5, the Bible says, A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his slaves who fear him, both small and great. The big and the little, the seemingly insignificant and the largesse, there are none who are accepted or exempted. Let everything that has breath praise our God. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. Amen and hallelujah. Well, the first five verses of our passage are really straightforward. Again, it's just amen and hallelujah. And an accounting for the various ways or reasons why we ought to worship him. 
He is worthy of all worship. He has granted the gift of salvation. His judgments are right. He is perfect in his righteousness. He is lording over all the earth. He has begun to reign as king eternal. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. We could count the ways from now to eternity that he is worthy of our worship. But things get a little more interesting in verses 6 and following. Here the Bible says, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Here the idea of the marriage of the Lamb and later in verse 9, the marriage banquet or the marriage supper of the Lamb is featured for the first time in the book of Revelation. Now, as a new Christian in a rural Baptist church, I thought that the marriage supper of the Lamb was probably this thing that was talked about all over the Bible. I heard this everywhere. I didn't know anything about the Bible, but everyone's talking about this. We sing songs about this marriage supper of the Lamb. You might be interested to know that this is exclusive to Revelation chapter 19. And I'm inclined to wonder if we don't speak so often about the marriage supper of the Lamb in our Baptist world circles because of our consistent fixation on food. There may be something uniquely Southern Baptist about our focus on the marriage supper of the lamb our points of reference are a little wonky in the first century you would have a wedding ceremony and there would be a great feast today if you go to a marriage ceremony you will almost assuredly starve to death before anyone gets around to serving any food and the portions are better suited for a bird than an adult human being <laughs> but in the first century this was a multi-day event food was graciously bestowed this was an opportunity to feast this was an opportunity to drink deeply of fine wine and drink this was some kind of occasion that kind of ceremony that kind of reception the kind of pomp and circumstance we assign to the wedding ceremony is what's in view here in the metaphor of marriage as it's applied in revelation 19 you and i are merely betrothed to or engaged to Jesus at the present hour. It is that we, at the time of our salvation, enter into this betrothal to Jesus, but that the marriage itself will be consummated upon the return of Jesus Christ. And there's so much about that that resonates, isn't there? For those of you who are married, who've gone through that experience, there's, there's so much about that metaphor, so much about that imagery that is so right. I, I, I can remember the whole engagement experience. It was just a, it's just a pain, you know. You're just sort of, you just, whatever you want, let's just get married, you know. And, and, then, it, and then it gets real. I've been saying recently, like, if you ask me to do anything six months from now, yeah, I can do that. Six months from now, I can do anything. Six months from now, whatever you want me to do, I can do it. And then you wake up one day, and it's real. I, I remember getting up on that morning. I slept in that morning. My dad coming to wake me up. 
I thought I was nervous. I, th I thought I had butterflies. I later discovered I had a full-blown stomach virus, but that's perhaps a story for another day. But just the anticipation of, of, that, of that day. I'm not an emotional person, as you probably know by now, but I can remember standing at the front of that church and those doors opening and seeing my wife for the first time and, and just being overwhelmed and unable to do much, just snot and cry, just snot and cry. It, it, there's, there's something magnificent about that moment. There, there's something about how far off it feels until it is upon you that runs parallel to Jesus' description of coming as a thief in the night. There's something about the power and the anticipation assigned to the consummation of that marriage, that moment when you at long last say your I do's. There's something about that imagery, something about that metaphor that says far more than words themselves can express. And it's the very imagery that's evoked here to speak of the union that exists between Christ and his church. Of the millions of images and the millions of metaphors that could have been used, God chooses to speak of his relationship with his people as a husband and wife relationship. As far back as Moses, as God establishes covenant between himself and the people of Israel, he refers to the people of God as his bride. He, in this fatherly way, attending to the needs of the bride, ever expressing his affection for her, even in the face of her faithlessness, he continues to remain faithful. One of the most moving passages in all of the Bible with regards to this husband-wife imagery is found in Hosea chapter 3. Never read this verse without being moved by what's expressed here. If you know the story of Hosea, he was the prophet of God in the Old Testament who was called by God to live out an illustration of God's affection for his people while at the same time living out an expression of his people's unfaithfulness. Hosea the prophet is called to marry a prostitute. It's a terrible lot in life, but it's the lot that falls to Hosea the prophet. And she does, as you might have known, what prostitutes do. She runs away. And then God says to Hosea in Hosea chapter 3, Go again and show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And listen to what Hosea does. He says in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And five bushels of barley. Now, dear brothers, that is grace. Did you know that the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that when we are faithless, he is faithful? It's, it's not that we're celebrating here the consummation of a marriage. It is the product of God buying our redemption, the price of our purchase with 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. It is that the marriage that is consummated here has been bought and paid for at the price of his only son's blood. The shedding of Jesus' blood has paid the price of our redemption and serves as the security, the guarantee, the warranty of the consummation of this betrothal now begun by the power of God's Spirit, the signing, sealing, and delivering 
of our salvation in Jesus Christ. This is a glorious thing that is looked toward here in Revelation chapter 19. This marriage, the consummation of the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. We're given an explanation as to what the fine linen is about in the next sentence. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. She is adorned in the righteous acts of the saints. You know how you prepare yourself for the marriage supper of the Lamb? By persevering in the faith, by holding fast. You don't get enticed by, you don't get sucked into the gravitational pull of the things of Babylon. You hold fast. Now I want to point out here, and I think this is a helpful distinction to make, that what John is doing here is providing a practical exhortation, not a doctrinal treatise on how we grow in grace or are sanctified or are readied for the marriage of the Lamb. Here's what I mean. We are saved by grace through faith. We acknowledge, at least by lip service, that we didn't do anything to get saved or to be saved. We are like that harlotous wife of Hosea the prophet who has gone astray. The price of our purchase has been paid. Not because we curried favor with God or we did some things to merit his favor or some reward. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. We had gone astray and he came after us to pay the price of our redemption. That's the truth of the gospel. It's not that we've won that in any way. We're saved by grace through faith. And Paul goes even further than that to note that even the faith that we express is the gift of God deposited in our hearts by the work of God's Holy Spirit, lest any man should boast. You don't get the credit. I don't get the credit. God is in the business of saving our souls from sin. There is a level at which we can even say that faith and repentance doesn't save you. Jesus saves you in the deposit of faith and repentance. We know that, right? But somewhere in our mind, we like to reserve the idea that from that point forward, we're sort of operating under the heavy obligation of working out our salvation in fear and in trembling. Under the yoke of the Savior, we are laboring to win the favor of God, to bring to, fu to, to fulfillment or to bring to perfection what has been by grace begun in us. We are laboring to walk worthy of our call. Now I want to say to you this morning that the faith that saves you from your sin is the faith that will sanctify you from your sin. There's enough truth about the misconception that it could be easy to get wrapped up in. To believe that after our salvation, the work of our sanctification is our responsibility. We have to bear well under the heavy weight of obligation to walk worthy of our call and to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. But the reality is, the very faith that has saved you from your sin comes with the assurance of the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit that enables and empowers in us the ability to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, to walk worthy of the call with which we have been called. Now, what I'm not contending for is the idea that somehow this is an effortless endeavor. In fact, that's the point of the passage. 
that this endeavor demands of us a tremendous amount of effort and constant diligence in the work of walking worthy of our call, working out our salvation in fear and in trembling. I think sometimes people operate according to the idea that effort is somehow opposed to grace. That if you're laboring hard, if you're seeking zealously to follow after God, if you pursue the face of God in righteousness to the point that you're concerned about tedious areas of your life, that that's somehow a reflection of legalism on your part, that you've missed the measure of grace God intends us to embrace and understand. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed, however, to the spirit of entitlement. God doesn't owe you anything. You don't You don't deserve anything because you did well on a given day. Even your ability to do well in a given moment, although our assessment is not usually precise, is completely reliant on the indwelling power and presence of God's Holy Spirit in you. The passage itself is not making this vast theological statement. It is an invitation to you that you would seek the face of God that you would work out your salvation in fear and in trembling, that you would labor to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is how you get ready for the marriage of the lamb. She's given fine linen to wear bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. The language itself reminds us of a parable of Jesus, a parable wherein there's a master who sends out his servants to invite guests to a wedding feast, and they spurn his invitation. And in frustration, he sends the servants out yet again to invite far and wide any who will come, go out into the highways and the byways and compel them that they might come. And they do, and the banquet hall is filled. And in a surprising turn, the parable concludes by noting that the master comes, and he observes that there are some in the wedding banquet who are not properly adorned. Their clothing isn't what it should be for the wedding banquet. And the Bible says, Jesus' story continues, they're bound hand and foot and they're thrown into everlasting fire. For many are called, but few are chosen. The point of the parable is to say that though the clarion call of the gospel has been issued far and wide, many have been invited. That when we come to the marriage feast of the Lamb, We come on his terms, or we do not come at all. Verse 9 will say in just a moment, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. This is an invitation-only affair. Now, I got good news for you. If you've yet to receive the invitation, if there's yet to be a moment in time in your life when you bowed your head and heart before God and said, God, forgive me of my sin, I acknowledge that your son Jesus is the only begotten son of God who died in my place and rose again, and I call his name today as Lord, that I might receive the gift of everlasting life. If you've never come to that place, that monumental moment in your life of bowing your head and heart before King Jesus, I got good news for you. Today just happens to be the day of salvation. And there's a place for you in the marriage banquet of the Lamb, but you can only come by faith and repentance. That's the picture that's that's being painted for us in our passage. This marriage celebration is reserved for those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, moreover, clothed in the righteousness of saints, which is the perseverance of the church under great duress and hardship. Verse 10, the passage continues, 
I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave with you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus. Worship God because the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I realize the latter part of verse 10 is a little jumbled. It may be difficult to understand, but I, I, w- I want to hone in on what I believe to be the primary thrust of that verse, which is the very brief, simple, straightforward command, worship God. It's sort of an odd insertion into Revelation 19, John recounting this exchange between himself and this angel, where John comes near worshiping him, and the angel has to say, don't do that. Worship God. Don't worship me. I'm your brother. I'm a fellow subject of the king, a a brother of you and your brothers who have the testimony about Jesus and the gift of salvation. Don't do that. Rather, worship God. Isn't it an odd sort of insertion here? I think there are probably a couple of things that John is after. One, there are issues in the early church with the worship of angels. Revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, one of which is Ephesus, which is sister city to the church at Colossae, the city of Colossae. One of the letters of the Apostle Paul sent to the Colossian people has, as one of many concerns Paul addresses there, concern that there are some within the church who are worshiping angels, and they're warned that they ought not do that. So there's something of a practical exhortation. John puts himself in the shoes of those who might be tempted to involve themselves in this excessive spiritualism and warns them that this is not good. Their worship should be addressed to God and to God alone. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are dispersed all over the Roman Empire. And a major concern of the writer of Hebrews is to say to them, Jesus is better than the angels. Do not worship angels. Jesus is better. And so at least on some level, that may be a concern of of John. He writes under the inspiration, warning them that they should worship God and not be obsessed with, fixated on, and certainly dare not worship angels or angelic beings, rather worship God. More than anything else, this exchange between John and this angel provides an opportunity for John to provide the positive side to a negative command offered back in Revelation chapter 18. Just one command in Revelation 18, just one command in this section of Revelation 19. In chapter 18, get out of Babylon. Don't allow yourself to come under the influence. Don't be intoxicated by the wine of Babylon. Get out of Babylon. We're sort of left at the end of chapter 18 with this question. How do we live in the world but not of the world. That's the delicate balance we seek to strike. Because again, we're not being called to some kind of monastic life, living in caves, in our own little enclaves of Christian groups, in our own little subculture separated from the world around us. That is not the call of the gospel in our life. But to be a salt and light, pressing in to the dark and decaying world around us, casting the light of the gospel. That is the call of Jesus on our life. So how do we do that? How do we not get sucked in to Babylon? And the answer is found in the conclusion of this section. It is to worship God. The problem is not that the trinkets that Babylon provides are shiny and they 
cause us to look there and to focus there and they draw our attention. The problem is that our eyes are off of the worship of God in the first place. If you will allow that you become enamored with, if you will fill your heart with a vision of who Jesus is and all that he has done for us, all else becomes pale in comparison. If you'll allow that your sight be otherwise blinded by the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the trinkets of this world will not draw your attention. How do we not get sucked into Babylon? By diving deeply into Jesus. How do you not worship the beast? You inoculate yourself against the enticements of this world by worshiping with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind the God of the Bible and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the answer that John 19.10 provides for us in this exchange between John and this angel. We could look back in the Bible to Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego their experiences, by the way, are the source for the imagery that's used in Revelation 18 and 19. And we could look at their example. How is it that they managed to live in Babylon without getting sucked in? How did Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego manage to not become Babylonians after all that time living in the Babylonian Empire? In Daniel chapter 1, the Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the food and drink of Babylon. You purpose in your heart that you will not defile yourself with the cultural trappings of the Babylon in which you and I live. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Not ask you where the rest of the Hebrew boys were. As far as we know, there were only three in the fiery furnace until that fourth, appearing as the Son of Man, walked among them. But there were many Jewish boys in Babylon carried away in exile in those days. In my imagination, they're standing around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, encouraging them that, hey, you're not really worshiping in your heart. You're just sort of saving your skin. Just bow and fake it till you make it. We'll survive, and one day we get out of here. Just go with the flow. Where are the rest of the Hebrew boys? And I'm just saying to you, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to purpose in your heart that you will not defile yourself with the food and drink of the Babylon in which you live, and you're going to have to purpose in your heart that you will not bow the knee to the gods of the empire, no matter which Babylon you may call your home. Worship God. And in doing so, find that you have been vaccinated against the enticements of Babylon. Persevere and be steadfast and strong, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, looking toward the resurrection of our physical body, marching face first, if necessary, into the very teeth of death with the promise of resurrection in our heart. This is the invitation of our passage. Get out of Babylon and worship God and come what may, because Jesus is King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Do you know him? I mean, do you know and treasure Jesus. We've had, we've had the benefit. Sometimes I hear cultural Christianity sort of getting trashed. 
now I think we're coming to a place where we wish we had cultural Christianity. We are, we, are, we are fastly approaching a time in our little Babylon as it, as it gets more and more unacceptable to walk faithfully with Jesus. You've been able to sort of straddle the fence. But I'm, I'm just saying to you, in the kingdom, there are no sheep-goat-fence-walking hybrids. You're either going to be in or you're going to be out. And maybe you've managed to sort of slide through you have, in some respects, been willing to bow the knee to whatever cultural idol was brought before you in order to save your skin, to keep your head, to go with the flow. You've been able to eat the food and drink the drink while maintaining a, a level of acceptability among your Christian peers. But those days are now behind us. The day has come for you to make a decision as to which team you're going to be on, who you're going to be with. If you're going to go with the idols of this world, if you're going to go with the spirit of Babylon, take off, but she will fall. There are really just two options for us, not to be grim or glib about the grimness of our passage. There really are just two ways to go. There is a fountain of the water of life from which we may freely drink, or, or there is the winepress of God's great wrath, which is to come. But make no mistake, dear friend, Babylon will fall. The people of God will live forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these moments to reflect on the gift of salvation and the severity of judgment that is to come. I pray, God, that you would help that our hearts be separated from the things of Babylon, Lord, that you would help us to resist the spirit of Babylon that abides within each of us. Help us, Lord, to fix our gaze on your son, Jesus, to be not enticed by the trinkets and the traps of this world, but to be steadfast and immovable in our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us that we not bow the knee, nor defile ourselves with the things of Babylon. And may Jesus be greatly glorified as we do. We ask it in Jesus' name.